You're listening to Vatican Radio. In this week's edition of Gospel Truth, the late Jill Bevilacqua and Sean Patrick Lovett bring us readings and reflections from the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 13, verses 33 to 37 of the first Sunday of Advent. Jesus said to his disciples, Be constantly on the watch. Stay awake. You do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man traveling abroad. He leaves home and places his servants in charge, each with his own task, and he orders the man at the gate to watch with a sharp eye. Look around you. You do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether at dusk, at midnight, when the cock crows, or at early dawn. Do not let him come suddenly and catch you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on guard. One word dominates the gospel of this first Advent Sunday, watch. And however we choose to interpret it, the meaning is unmistakable. Watching means staying awake, as the second imperative puts it, just in case we shouldn't have taken in the first. Other versions have be on your guard and take ye heed, watch and pray. And indeed, even one of our most recent dictionaries gives as its first meaning of the verb to keep vigil as an act of devotion, while another has to remain awake for the purpose of religious observance, archaic. Certainly a vigil or watch has retained a lot of its earlier meaning of an all-night watch kept in church before certain holy days. We still watch on the night of Holy Saturday and call it the Easter Vigil, but it's by no means an all-night affair. Another word applied to all-night watches in church was wake, for obvious reasons. They used to be awake at the festival for the annual commemoration of the dedication of a church. But, we read, in due course the festive element predominated, and the name came to be associated with annual fairs and revelries held at such times. Every town had its fair, every village its wake, wrote Thackeray and another earlier writer complained in 1629 of their wakes and vigils in all riot and excess of eating and drinking. In the north of England, they have Wakes Week, which is a week of holiday fun, while in Ireland, a wake was begun in the sober watching of the body of the deceased before the funeral, but ended in feasting. The liturgical year describes Advent thus. Advent is a time of preparation for Christmas when the first coming of God's Son to men is recalled. It is also a season when minds are directed by this memorial to Christ's second coming at the end of time. And as regards this first Sunday... The Mass texts focus with special intensity on the second coming, while the Gospel speaks of the Lord's return and urges watchfulness. This quality of watchfulness is given greater stress by the phrase to watch with a sharp eye, the order given to the man at the gate, doorkeeper or porter in other versions. He certainly would not be encouraged to drink, as the porter in Macbeth does, and is then so befuddled to answer the door that the knocking practically deafens him. An evocative image of a gatekeeper was called up by King George VI in his Christmas broadcast of 1939, when the Second World War was barely begun. He was quoting a little-known writer, Minnie Louise Haskins. 
and I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, Give me a light, that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, Go out into the darkness, and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light, and safer than a known way. One imagines always that a gatekeeper will have a lantern or a torch, but maybe just a sharp eye, like the gatekeeper butterfly, which has twin eye spots on its wings. And when we think of the word watch, it's typically of a period of vigil during the night. Before the introduction of regular police, the watch would refer to a watchman, or a body of watchmen, who patrolled and guarded the streets of a town, and even proclaimed the hour like this, Four o'clock on a fine May morning, and all's well. And also, of course, when all wasn't well. Night watchmen still exist, of course, to guard office or public buildings, and even private ones. For, as Hamlet said, For some must watch while some must sleep, so runs the world away. And in at least two of the Psalms the watchman is mentioned. If the Lord does not watch over the city, in vain does the watchman keep vigil. And in the De Profundis, My soul is longing for the Lord more than watchman for daybreak. And this brings us to that other meaning of watch, an actual period of vigil during the night. We come across it again in Mark when our Lord walked on the water. When evening came, the boat was far out on the lake, and he was alone on the land. He could see they were worn out with rowing, for the wind was against them, and about the fourth watch of the night he came towards them, walking on the lake. Mark here uses the Roman divisions of time. They divided the day into sixteen parts, each of an hour and a half, beginning at midnight so that it must have been between 4.30 and 6 in the morning. The Hebrews, however, divided the night into four watches, and these are referred to in our Gospel. You do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether at dusk or midnight, when the cock crows, or at early dawn. The first watch was at dusk, in a former version at even, or the beginning of the watches. In Lamentations we read, up, cry out in the night-time, in the early hours of darkness. The second watch was at midnight, or the middle watch. In Judges we read, Gideon and his hundred companions reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when the new sentries had just been posted. The third watch was when the cock crows, or simply cock crow as we say, and the fourth at early dawn, or the morning watch, or dawning. In Exodus we read, In the morning watch Yahweh looked down on the army of the Egyptians from the pillar of fire and of cloud and threw the army into confusion. I'd like to go back a moment to the third watch and have you listen to what traveller H.V. Morton wrote about Cockcrow in Jerusalem. He was going to watch sunrise from the Mount of Olives. There was a large boulder in a barley field. I sat on it and listened to the chorus of cockcrowing that surrounds Jerusalem in the dawn. The cockerels of Siloam were challenging the cockerels of Zion. 
Far off came fainter crowing as the birds of Mount Scopus answered the throaty greeting from the valley of Jehoshaphat. Verily I say unto thee, that this night before the cock crow thou shalt deny me thrice, said Jesus to Peter. This remark and its touching sequel is one that must rest on Peter's own record. It is, however, characteristic of a certain school of scriptural criticism that a curious dispute has been waged on these words. It has even been suggested that when Jesus mentioned the crowing of the cock, he did not mean the common barnyard sound, but the time signal, the galicinium, or cock-crowing, made at intervals by the Roman guard from the ramparts of the castle of Antonia. The writer is referring here to the fact that the Romans sounded the hour on a trumpet three times. The Gallicinium was the cock-crowing from the Latin gallus for cock. And Morton goes on. I cannot and I do not think that anyone reading the Gospels in a normal manner should credit such a theory. It is true that as long as the temple stood the breeding and keeping of fowls in Jerusalem were forbidden because by scratching up the ground they spread Levitical uncleanliness. Therefore, argue some critics, Jesus could not have meant cockcrow when he said cockcrow. I think it's much easier to believe that the law was not observed and that in spite of the priests, cocks crowed in the dawn round Jerusalem as they do today. It's rather curious too, if there were no cockcrowing in the time of Christ, that when mourning over Jerusalem, Jesus should have said, How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings? The phrase, the watches of the night, has been called poetic or literary. But for the man posted as sentry in wartime, there was little to be poetic about. For Ivor Gurney, however, poet and musician, sentry duty on the Western Front brought back a powerful memory, as he wrote in Bach and the Sentry. Watching the dark, my spirit rose in flood on that most dearest prelude of my delight. The low-lying mist lifted its hood, the October stars showed nobly in clear night. When I return and to real music-making, and play that prelude, how will it happen then? Shall I feel as I felt, a sentry hardly waking, with a dull sense of no man's land again? A close friend of Gurney's, fellow poet Will Harvey, was likewise a lover of music, and wrote of that same piece, that divine prelude and fugue of Bach in E major, surely the talking of angels overheard. Although Ivor Gurney did return to real music-making, it was not for long, for he had been gassed at Pachendale, an invalided home. His physical and mental health permanently scarred, he spent most of his last years wandering in the no-man's land of unreason. Perhaps the most familiar and most frequent reference to a watch as a stint of duty is that which takes place on board ship, where officers and men do regular shifts of four hours, except during what are known as the dog watches of two hours each. And talking of dogs, or rather watchdogs, they are happily remembered in these lines of Byron from his Don Juan. Tis sweet. 
to hear the watchdog's honest bark, bay deep-mouthed welcome as we draw near home. Tis sweet to know there is an eye will mark our coming, and look brighter when we come. But returning to a watch on board ship, it can also mean a lookout, as Walter Lord records in the opening to his classic account of the sinking of the Titanic, A Night to Remember. High in the crow's nest of the new white star liner, Titanic, lookout Frederick Fleet peered into a dazzling night. It was calm, clear, and bitterly cold. There was no moon, but the cloudless sky blazed with stars. The Atlantic was like polished plate glass. People later said they'd never seen it so smooth. Frederick Fleet was one of six lookouts carried by the Titanic. They were the eyes of the ship, and on this particular night Fleet had been warned to watch especially for icebergs. So far so good. On duty at ten o'clock, a few words about the ice problem with lookout Reginald Lee, who shared the same watch, a few more words about the cold, and mostly just silence, as the two men stared into the darkness. Now the watch was almost over, and still there was nothing unusual. Just the night, the stars, the biting cold, the wind that whistled through the rigging as the Titanic raced across the calm black sea at twenty-two and a half knots. It was almost 11.40pm on Sunday, the 14th of April, 1912. Suddenly, Fleet saw something directly ahead. It was not long before the lookout and the world knew what it was. As our gospel draws to a close, we're warned not to let the master come suddenly and catch us asleep. Satan, in Milton's Paradise Lost, looks at his legions lying entranced on the sea of fire and exclaims. Awake, arise, or be forever fallen. They heard and were abashed, and up they sprung upon the wing, as when men want to watch on duty sleeping found by whom they dread, rouse and bestir themselves ere well awake. And let's close with an extract from the journal of a monk whose turn it was to go on fire watch. But first, listen to Isaiah. Watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? The watchman said, The morning cometh, and also the night. In a modern translation, we read, Watchman, what time of night? Perhaps it's more exact, but the other seems brimful of meanings. And Thomas Merton, American Trappist monk, opened the epilogue to his journal, The Sign of Jonas, with those words. Let's hear what the knight had to say to him. Firewatch, July 4th, 1952. Watchman, what of the night? In the night all things began, and in the night the end of all things has come before me. It is my time, time to be the night watchman in the house that will one day perish. The watchman's clock, together with the watchman's slippers, are kept in a box, with a flashlight and the keys to various places. I take the heavy clock and sling it on its strap over my shoulder. The house begins to be silent. Then I begin to hear the eloquent night. O oh God, my God, 
The night his value was the day has never dreamed of. All things stir by night, waking or sleeping, conscious of the nearness of their ruin. Only man makes himself illuminations he conceives to be solid and eternal. But while we ask our questions and come to our decisions, God blows our decisions out. The roofs of our houses cave in upon us. The tall towers are undermined by ants, the walls crack and cave in, and the holiest buildings burn to ashes, while the watchman is composing a theory of duration. The fire watch is an examination of conscience, in which your task as watchman suddenly appears in its true light, a pretext devised by God to isolate you and to search your soul with lamps and questions in the heart of darkness. Having done his rounds, Merton climbs up into the belfry tower at the top of the monastery. And now my whole being breathes the wind which blows through the belfry, and my hand is on the door through which I see the heavens. The door swings out upon a vast sea of darkness and of prayer. Will it come like this, the moment of my death? Will you open a door upon the great forest, and set my feet upon a ladder under the moon, and take me out among the stars? <laughs> 